Isn't it wonderful to be led in worship by people who love God and are using their gifts and their talents to praise Him? Amen. Yeah, you guys are excited. Woo! It is good to be together. And it's good to worship God as we continue in our series called One on the book of Philippians. We are reminded by the Apostle Paul in his letter to the church in Philippi of uh, our call to unity and to be joyful in the Spirit because the gospel of Jesus Christ is moving forward. As we have looked at the first uh, chapter and a half of of the letter that Paul wrote uh, to the people 2,000 years ago, he has reminded them and us to remember who we are called to be as a church that we are to be united in our thinking and in our spirits, in our hearts, and to be united in our sense of purpose in terms of why are we even here this morning. We are encouraged to be joyful even in the midst of challenges and suffering because the gospel is moving forward, not only in this place, but in the community around us and in the world. And because of that, our purpose for being is being fulfilled and therefore we should rejoice. I don't know what your week has been like this week. You may come today being weighed down with some challenges and difficulties. Many of us have been sick and are still trying to overcome the the cough or the aches or the fevers. Uh, It's that time of year. Uh, I don't know what's happening in your relationships. Often those are some of the most weighty, difficult things that can um, weigh on us. But God invites us this morning to join with the people All those years ago who were encouraged by the Apostle Paul, not only to remember who we are called to be, but remember the one who called you. That we are here because we have answered the call of Jesus Christ to step out of the world that we knew, the life that we were familiar with, to to discover a whole new meaning and purpose to being alive. And, And because we've stepped out on this new journey of faith, all of those challenges and difficulties, while continuing to be a struggle can also be found with joy because God is there with us in the midst of it. As we seek to live out this pattern of sacrificial living that Jesus modeled in his own obedience to God, the attitude of Christ in us can become the antidote for our own selfish ambition and our vain conceit and the things that want to turn our attention inward on ourselves and run the risk of messing up all of our relationships. This morning, we're going to continue into the second half of chapter 2. And before we do that, though, I want to just pray for us because I just have this sense. I know for me and for our family, as well as other people I've talked to, that that maybe there's some some heaviness in our midst. Maybe there's some things that are weighing on us. And and I, I think that God invites us to come to Him with those things in worship. Not just the praise and the thanksgiving and, and the gratitude, but also the the depression and the sadness and the the challenge. So let's pray in, in that regard and ask God to bless this time of looking into his word. God, it is good to be in your presence. Sometimes it's easy to just kind of rush through the motions of another Sunday where we come and we do three or four songs, and we listen to a message, and we give our offerings, and then go on about our week. But 
But God, this morning, perhaps your spirit is inviting us to just take a deeper look at the invitation you're giving us in this place this morning to to truly find rest for our souls. God, as we breathe the breath of your spirit this morning, we ask that you would bring a sense of calm and collectedness to our inner world. God, you know beyond what we even understand what's going on in each of us in this moment, this morning, and and you care intimately about the things that we worry about, the things that we are burdened by. And now, God, we just want to open our hands and open our hearts and let you take those burdens from our hearts and from our minds. God, would you, would you lift the cares of this world from our shoulders so that we can hear a fresh word from you this morning as we look to the Bible and the words that you've given us that teach us about your son, Jesus. Would you bring them alive and allow Jesus again to be the living word to us this morning. God, we need your healing touch in our lives. Would you be honored and glorified as we hear your word this morning and respond in a loving obedience to your call in our lives. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we said, the Apostle Paul has reminded the people in Philippi about who they are called to be and about the one who has called them and to keep their eyes focused on the right things and to not be distracted by their own selfish desires which often detract from the kind of community and life that he's inviting the Christian church in Philippi to experience. And he continues in chapter 2. We're going to be reading verses 12 through 30. Again, it's a, it's a fairly long passage, and so we have a lot to cover. But we're going to focus on a, a few things out of this passage this morning uh, that I think will be the most helpful for us. We pick it up in verse 12 where he says, therefore, my dear friends, and we were reminded last week that therefore is an important word for Paul because anytime he says therefore, he's wanting to capture everything he said to that point and saying all of that now has relevance to what I'm going to say. He said that last week and so now he's saying it again and he's saying I'm going to double down now on everything I've told you to this point. And, and it's like he's drilling down into the experience that the Philippians are having in their community, in their life, and he's wanting them to not miss the point that he's trying to make. Therefore, he says, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act according to fulfill his good purpose. Do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. And then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. But Even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I may be cheered when I receive news about you. I have no one else like him who will show genuine concern for your welfare. For everyone looks out for their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know that Timothy has proved himself because as a son with a father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. 
I hope, therefore, to send him as soon as I see how things go with me, and I am confident in the Lord that I myself will come soon. But I think it is necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother, co-worker, and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger, whom you sent to take care of my needs. For he longs for all of you and is distressed because you heard he was ill. Indeed, he was ill and almost died. But God had mercy on him and did Not on him only, but also on me, to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I am all the more eager to send him, so that you, so that when you see him again, you may be glad and I may have less anxiety. So then welcome him in the Lord with great joy and honor people like him, because he almost died for the work of Christ. He risked his life to make up for the help you yourselves could not give me. Paul starts off here at the very beginning with this difficult, challenging, uncomfortable word, obedience. Therefore, my dear friends, as you always have obeyed, he says, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation in fear and trembling. How many of us like obedience? No? As as parents, don't we often struggle to to get our children to want to be obedient? But yet there's something in the human spirit. There's something in our personalities. There's something in us that just resists this idea of having to obey somebody else. We want what we want, and we want the freedom to, to do what we want, when we want. We want to pursue the things that make us happy. We don't want to care about what somebody else says we have to do. In fact, in a a land of of freedom and, and, and pull yourself up by your bootstraps, if you're having to be obedient to somebody else, that's that's actually kind of not a good thing. You know? We want to throw off the shackles and and live for yourself and find your own meaning and joy and, and fulfillment in life. Obedience is a is an outdated, outmoded ancient kind of thing that religious people talk about. And yet Paul says here, as you've always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to obey. See, here he's giving them a positive affirmation. He's not trying to scold them here. He said, as you've always obeyed, he said, you've always obeyed, continue to obey. But what, what kind of obedience is he talking about? Is Paul kind of coming with his apostolic credentials and saying, I'm writing to you, and because I'm writing to you, you have to obey what I say because I'm a capital A apostle. Right? And so, so he's given the authority as a religious leader to be able to tell them what to do, and they need to be obedient. I'm the, the capital P pastor. And I have the authority to tell you all what to do. And you need to obey because I'm the pastor. Okay. (laughs) Right. Now we're on the right track. That's not what Paul is doing here. You see, if you think back to last week, for those of you who were here, Paul just finished talking about the obedience of Jesus Christ, who didn't think of his own desires and his own needs, 
but became obedient even unto death on the cross because he had a higher purpose. He had a higher calling from his Father in heaven. That He had a mission that he was given to fulfill, and he remained obedient to that mission, to that calling in his life, even though it cost him everything. And now Paul is coming back to the the Philippians and saying, if this is the person that you say you're following, if you are Christ followers, I, I need to remind you that your call is to continue to be obedient to this mission of God that we have been given as followers of Jesus Christ. It is his mission that we have been invited to participate in and fulfill. So he's not talking about you need to be obedient to the rules and the regulations and the moral standards of of your religious ethics. All those might be important and true, but that's not the kind of obedience he's talking about. In fact, as we'll see, all of those activities and behaviors of, of morality and righteousness are not the starting point for being in right relationship with God. It's the other way around. And so as he talks about being obedient, he's not talking about living up to some religious code in order to be good enough or to be righteous enough or to be holy enough. He's talking about being obedient to the purpose of our calling and to the identity that we have in Christ. That's why he goes on to say, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to fulfill his good purpose. You need to be obedient to the new reality of salvation in which we now live. You see, salvation is not just a something that will happen at the end of history or when we die that we get to go to heaven and we will be saved. That's a part of it. But salvation is so much more comprehensive in, 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 the, in the biblical understanding. Salvation is something we experience and we live into now. We are in the process of being saved. And that, that future eternity that we live with God is something that begins now and is a part of our identity now and is a challenge for how we live into that and experience that today. Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling For it is God who works in you. Now, wait a minute. Isn't that a little bit of a contradiction? Work out your salvation, for it is God who works in you. How how can those both be true? Is is Paul saying here that we are supposed to work harder at at earning our salvation? No. In fact, as, as we're saying, that's just the opposite. We need to always be living into this salvation that God has already made available because it is God who works in you. Continue to be obedient to to living out this call of God in your life because this salvation only comes from God through the power of Jesus Christ at work in our hearts and in our lives. It's not by our own work or works. That's the gospel that Paul is talking about. Salvation comes as a free gift from Jesus Christ. There's nothing you can do to earn it. There's nothing you can do to to work towards it. It's not about building a stairway to heaven that someday we can be good enough to make it. The hard part, though, is that that gift leads us on a journey with Jesus. And rather than being a stairway to heaven, it's often a journey to the cross. And it means that we're going through a process of living the lifestyle pattern that Jesus demonstrated of always dying to ourselves so that we can come alive to the purposes of God in our lives. 
Yet, if our salvation is real, Paul is saying, then we must be intentionally living into it. We must be allowing it to work itself out in all of our actions, in all of our behaviors, and particularly in our relationships with one another. You know, many people judge themselves by their intentions and not their actions. We say that again. Many people judge themselves by their intentions and not their actions. But Jesus taught that our, our actions or the, the fruit of our lives and not our intentions really reveal the state of our heart. Let me, let me show you what I mean. Let's look real quick at Luke chapter 6 verses 34 and 35. Jesus, in teaching his disciples, he says, No good tree bears bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. Each tree is recognized by its own fruit. People do not pick figs from thorn bushes or grapes from briars. A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart, and an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. Well, then who can be saved, right? I mean, that was the, often the disciples' response to so much of Jesus' teaching. Oh, my goodness, Jesus. Well, if that's the way it is, who can be saved? Because I know what I carry in my heart. I know the kinds of things that run through my mind. And if, if, if that's what I'm judged on, if that's where, if, if that's where the, the things that you're expecting me to be and to do come out of, then, boy, I'm in trouble. See, are there any ungodly actions in our lives today, this week, that we are kind of excusing because our intentions are good? Well, I, you know, I, I really mean to be a good person. I mean, I, I mean, you hear that a lot, right? Well, we're really a good person. Our, our intentions are good, and yet our actions often belie the fact that what's really in our hearts is more akin to the selfish ambition and the vain conceit that Paul was warning the Philippians about last week. In what areas of your life do you see your intentions and your actions not lining up? Often we have, we're filled with good intentions. We want, to, we want to love people well. We want to live sacrificially. We want to put the needs of others ahead of ourselves. And yet when we get into our day-to-day lives and our routines and, and life begins to get hard, it's so easy to, to come back and put the focus on ourselves and, and want to reach out to, to get our needs met first. In what ways do our intentions and our actions line up or not line up? What are the areas where we need to continue to ask for God to work in our hearts to change our hearts so that our actions follow what is inside of us? You see, we constantly have to ask God to reveal the areas in our lives, in our hearts that need changing so that he can show us the areas that we need to work with him for the fruit that he wants to see in our lives. The Bible tells us, and Paul is reminding the Philippians here, that only God can change the human heart. Only God can do that work in us of giving us the the courage to to, to allow him to, to bring that healing in our lives, to make that change in our attitudes, to bring a whole new sense of purpose and meaning to who we are on the inside. 
And so we need to throw ourselves on God's mercy and we need to seek his healing touch in our lives. And it's only then when when he does that work in us and we, we give him permission to do that, that the overflow of that healed heart is a life of goodness and righteousness and love. See, our, our job in working out our salvation is to do that, that work in our hearts with God because all of the overflow, the behaviors and the, the morality and the ethics all comes from a changed heart and a changed spirit. And only that can come from the resurrecting power of Jesus Christ in our lives. The amazing thing is that power is available to you and to me this morning, right now, in this moment. And it's available every day, every morning that we wake up and, and we're feeling overburdened and overworked and tired and not sure if we can push forward another day. That power is available through the Holy Spirit to, to change our heart again, to give us a new perspective and a new attitude so that the love of God and the power of his work in our lives is, what, is the fuel that we're living on. And we don't have to muster up the courage of, in our own. We don't have to pull ourselves up by, a, by our bootstraps and be a good person on our own strength. In fact, if we try and do that, Paul says, you're already off track from the beginning. Only God can change our hearts, and only a changed heart leads to the actions and the behaviors that God desires. You see, we discover righteousness in our lives as a byproduct of the condition of our hearts when God comes in and does his work in us. And so Paul says you need to work out your salvation in fear and trembling, so, so it was, we, need to, we need to be afraid of God, right? We need to come and cower because, you know, he has lightning bolts. And if we don't do the right thing, if we don't live up to the perfect religious law that he set out, man, he might strike us down, right? He might punish us. In fact, maybe the bad things happening in my life right now are because God's angry at me and he's, he's punishing me and I need to be afraid of God. No, Paul's not saying that either. What Paul's saying is, as you you work out your salvation, do so with the the soberness and the seriousness of understanding who it is that is doing the work in you. That, that, That this God that we have come to worship today, this God that we say we are following, is the God who created everything that we see. In fact, created you and me. It's the God who raised Jesus from the dead. And overcame the power of sin by, by, by the sacrificial love of his son who came to give his life for us. It's the God who holds the, the keys to heaven and hell. This is the God who is inviting us to allow him to do his work in our hearts. Come to him with not, not being afraid, but with, with sober respect and awe of what we are actually invited to participate in. He's inviting us to wake up from our slumber, Paul says in Ephesians 5, and to begin to live lives worthy of this gospel that we are called to live out. Let's go to Ephesians real quick, where Paul is talking about this idea of waking up from sleep. Ephesians 5, verses 13 to 17. Paul says, everything exposed by the light becomes visible, and everything that is illuminated becomes a light. That is why it is said, wake up, sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days 
are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. This uh, phrase that's in quotations here, wake up, sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Many scholars believe that, that Paul is taking an ancient scripture from Isaiah 60, verses 1 through 3, and he's, he's reinterpreting in the light of what we now know because of Jesus Christ and what he's accomplished through his life, death, and resurrection. And, and Isaiah 60 is the verse we read earlier, arise, shine, for your light has come. This is a prophetic passage that predicted through the people of Israel that the light of God would come into the world in a new and amazing way and that the glory of the Lord rises now upon you. See, darkness covers the earth and thick darkness is over the peoples, but the Lord rises upon you and his glory appears over you. Nations will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your dawn. You see, this is a, not only a part of the invitation we have to live in the light of God's love, but it's a part of the mission and call that we have as the church of Jesus Christ. That's why Paul goes on to continue to talk about what he's asking them to do in Philippians uh, 2, 14 through 18. And, and what, he's, what he's doing here is he's using this reference back to the people of Israel. It's kind of woven in here. And, and, and we're going to talk about that here in a second. He's helping them to see that the very mission that the people of Israel had as those who were called to be set apart for God's purposes is the same call that the Philippians have and that we too as followers of Jesus have. Therefore, he says in verse 14, do everything without grumbling or arguing. Now, if you remember last week, he said do nothing out of selfish ambition and vain conceit. Now he's saying do everything without grumbling or arguing. That's kind of a, a tough one, isn't it? I mean, I mean, it's so easy, right? Even just like under your breath or even without speaking. I mean, it's so easy for us to, to grumble or to want to argue about things. And, and, and when, we're, when we're grumbling and we're arguing, Paul is saying that the motivation for grumbling and arguing is coming out of that, that focus on self, that, that desire to have your own needs met first, not looking to the needs of others. Do everything, he says, without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. See, he's referring back to the people of Israel here because that was God's challenge against the people of Israel. That they are called to be light in the darkness, to, to be the people who stood out among a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the, the word of life, the, the logos of life. And then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. See, he's talking, he's actually referring back here to Deuteronomy's 32.5, which will be the last extra scripture we kind of look at. But in there, God is criticizing the people of Israel because they, they were called to be set apart to be his holy people. But his charge against them in 32.5 is that they are corrupt and not his children. To their shame, they are a warped, a warped and crooked generation. Why were the people of Israel, for those of you who are familiar with their story, criticized by God in this way for being a warped and crooked generation? Because they were the people who were originally called by God, found themselves in slavery, and then the power of God came to, to Egypt and rescued them and, and, and walked with them through the desert for 40 years and provided food for them and rescue. And, and what was their response? 
Oh, man, this stinks. Thanks a lot, God, for rescuing us, taking us all the way out here into the desert. Yeah, sure, the pillar of fire was pretty cool, and, you know, the, the, the cloud by day, that, that was pretty amazing. All those waters parting, that was an amazing sight. I mean, I would love to see that again. But, man, being stuck out here in this dirt and this, this sand and this heat and eating this, what is it every day? We don't even know what it's called, manna. Yeah, we should go back to Egypt. I mean, where we had meat and hot stew and we could sit by the fire. And yeah, it was hard work, but man, at least we could, we could, you know, enjoy the comforts of life. And God said, you don't get it. You're missing the whole point. Yes, I've led you into a, a difficult place. But we're going through the desert to the promised land. And you're not keeping your eyes on the prize. You're not keeping your eyes on the purpose for which I'm leading you to a whole new experience of life. But instead, you're worried about your creaturely comforts and the things that are difficult in the moment. And so you start grumbling and arguing among yourselves. And it, it, was, it was this grumbling and arguing that, that totally took them off their focus of God's presence and power in their life. And, and, and so he's like, oh, this, you're, you've warped your thinking you, I had you on the straight path, and you're walking all these crooked ways. You were supposed to be set apart to, to be a light that shines in the universe for all the nations to see that, that, that I'm real and that my power is available and, that, and I have plans to invite everybody to experience as well. But, but if you focus only on yourselves and your own needs and your own wants, no one's going to see my power at work in your life. No one's going to see the changed heart that I have for you. Because you're not walking in the way of forgiveness and salvation that I've brought. The Israelites grumbled and argued with one another. And they argued with their leaders. And they bickered and they moaned and they set up idols for themselves. And they got off track and worshipped other gods. And God's saying through Paul that their grumbling and their arguing came from their own selfish ambition and their vain conceit. Rather than valuing others more highly than themselves and, and seeing God's purpose at work in their lives and looking to the interests of others and not only the, the, their own interests, they missed the very mission for why he had called them to be a people. To shine among the nations of the world like stars in the night sky. And the Philippians too, as Christ followers, now own that same mission. And we too, men and women, have been called to pick up the mantle of that mission to be the light in the darkness amidst the crooked and twisted generation in which we live. You know, it's an interesting thing about stars. There are these huge, enormous balls of gas out in, the spa in space in the universe, and they fill the night sky with light. And, and they radiate power and light and, and radiation. In fact, it's, it's our own star, the sun, that gives light and warmth to this planet that allows life to, to exist and to thrive. And it's always radiating outward its light and its warmth to all those who are in need of, it, of its life-giving power in their lives. You know there's another power in the universe that's very much like a sun that has the opposite effect? It's called a black hole. 
It is this huge ball of dense matter. In fact, we don't even really know exactly what it all is, right? But it is so dense. It is so tightly packed. And the gravitational pull of it becomes so enormous that it sucks everything else into itself. Light itself cannot escape the black hole, which is why it's black, because no light emits from it. It sucks everything in, and all it is is this ball of blackness. And I think what what Paul is trying to help the Philippians to understand, and what I think is important for us to also recognize, is that we have a choice in our lives. We have a choice every day. Are we going to be a sun, or are we going to be a black hole? And when we allow the focus of our, our own attitudes and our own hearts and our own minds to be on our own needs and our own selfish wants first, we become like a black hole that, that, that says, everything is about me. Life is all about me. It's all about my needs first. And yet God is calling us to have a change of heart where we're reversing the polarity of our lives and we're no longer living to, to grab and to get and to gain, but we're living to give and to serve and to love. And as we do so, what, what, what we find out is that we discover the joy of seeing the, the love of God spread to other people. The gospel is advancing, and we experience the very fulfillment of the purpose for why we were created. I think too often in my own life, I get focused on my own emotions and my own experience and, and, and I, I start to wallow in my own regret and my own wishing that life could be different or life could be easier. And why does it have to be this way? And how do I break out of this, this mopey attitude that I have all the while forgetting that there are hundreds and maybe thousands of people that God maybe is calling me to serve. But because I'm focused on myself, I kind of I turn inward and I circle the wagons in my life and I just try and take care of my own needs. And I'm missing the ministry and the service and the calling that God has for me in my own life. And too often, churches become black holes in their community. Where they're called to be a son in the midst of their, 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 their city. A son in the midst of their county. To radiate the light of God's love into the world. But, but they become so focused on, on themselves that, that they kind of exist without anybody having, without having any impact on the community around them. You know, one of the questions that a lot of uh, leaders tell churches they should ask themselves is, if we stopped existing tomorrow, would our community miss us? I think our church would be missed. Yeah, we do a lot of good things in our community, and I, I think we've got a lot of things going right, but I think there's a lot more things that we could continue to add to the things that we already are doing well. Not only in terms of the organizations that we're involved in, but the relationships with the people who live in our neighborhoods and who work next to us and who we play with on the weekends and the people we socialize with. Even some of our own family members we need to be more like sons and less like black holes in our relationships with one another. Then Paul says he'll be able to boast He'll be able to to praise on the last day, the day of Christ, when it's all said and done, even if he dies. Because see, he might die very shortly. He's in prison. He's going to trial. He may be executed for Jesus Christ. But he's saying, even if I die, I will be able to boast and rejoice on the last day because I know if you stay true to this calling that you've received, that the love and the light of Jesus in your life will produce the fruit of the gospel, which is my whole purpose for living. Paul's whole purpose is that he had become a slave to the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
And if the gospel is advancing, then he can celebrate and rejoice. And he encourages the Philippians to have that same attitude. They should also be glad and rejoice with him. You see, following Paul's example and the life of Jesus Christ, living out the gospel in their own lives, is what true sacrificial worship looks like. And he's inviting them to truly worship God with their whole lives. I wish we had time to really unpack all of the the nuances of of his story about Timothy and Epaphroditus because there's some some rich stuff there. But but most scholars say that that this isn't so much a section about teaching. It's it's a little bit of a travel log. He's trying to give them some updates. I hope to send Timothy to you soon, but I'm definitely sending Epaphroditus. But the most important thing that scholars say is that he's using Timothy and Epaphroditus as two examples that the Philippians should look up to, to say, here are two men who have given their lives for the gospel. In in fact, Epaphroditus almost died because he was sent by you in service to me, and now I'm going to send him back to you because he he almost gave his life to fulfill the service that you've given him, and I want you to welcome him back and celebrate who he is and honor people like Timothy and Paul and Epaphroditus. Who are the Timothys and the Epaphroditus and the Pauls in our midst? That, that those that are living out the example of the sacrificial pattern of living that Jesus has given us, those are the people we need to, to look to and emulate. Those are the people we need to draw alongside and, and say, how can I learn from you? How can I, I allow what you have to rub off on me and, and allow the community of God to shape one another as we experience the Spirit of God in our midst. That is one of the beautiful things about coming to the communion table, is that we are reminded that because of the broken body of Jesus and because of his blood shed for us, the power of his Spirit is at work in my life and in yours, uniting us to be the body of Christ, to live out the mission that Jesus has given us, to be sons that shine in the world the light of God's love. As we come to this table today, I want to invite you to take some time to reflect on those areas in your life this morning where maybe you have been good-intentioned, well-intentioned, but your actions haven't completely lined up with what you have wanted to be true in your life. And to pray not that you have greater power in your own strength to to change and and, and to fulfill that, but to pray for the power of God's Spirit to change your heart from the inside out so that the, the intended outcome comes from the overflow of His love working in your life. As we come to this holy and sacred table, I invite you to come not because you must, but because you may. Come not to testify that you are righteous, but that you sincerely love our Lord Jesus Christ and desire to be his true disciples. Come not because you are strong, but because you are weak. Not because you have any claim on the grace of God, but because in your frailty and in your sin, you stand in constant need of God's mercy and help. Come not to express an opinion, but to seek God's presence and to pray for his spirit. The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and after giving thanks, he broke it, saying, this is my body, which is broken for you. 
Do this in remembering me. In the same way also he took the cup, saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembering me. And the Apostle Paul reminds us that as often as we eat this bread and we drink this cup, we proclaim the death of Messiah until he comes again. Would you pray with me? God, we do thank you that you are a God who has shown the light of your Son into the universe in a way that has given life to us. Wake us up again today to the ways that you even now are wanting to work in our hearts to heal us, to shape us, to mold us and to call us forward to be the people that you desire us to be. In this place, in our church, in our homes, with our spouses and our children, with our parents, with our co-workers and the ways that we're serving the community around us. God, would you forgive us for the ways that we have allowed our own focus on ourselves to distract us from this call that you have given us to be a light to all those around us. Be with us as we participate in the life and death of Jesus through these elements. And may your presence meet us here in this place. We ask this in Jesus' name.